Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 61 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we'll be presenting the evidence about the Betty and Barney Hill UFO incident. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So 58 years ago this month, a New England couple was driving home when they sighted something strange in the sky. The couple was Betty and Barney Hill, and they became the subject of the first widely reported UFO abduction in the United States. An extensive investigation followed, and the incident became the most famous reported case of alien abduction. And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Yeah. So, Jimmy, as we just said, this was the first reported alien abduction? Well, no, there were earlier cases. There seemed to have been a few reports of abduction before the Kenneth Arnold sighting of 1947, which we talked about in episode 46. After 1947, there were many people who claimed to be taken aboard flying saucers. However, they were generally voluntary trips on UFOs. So the people involved were called contactees rather than abductees, because they were usually contacted rather than abducted by aliens. They sometimes claimed the aliens they met were from nearby planets like Mars or Venus, you know, which is now really problematic in hindsight. Yeah. Sometimes they reported even being taken to these planets and they had messages of peace for mankind, warning us about the dangers of atom bombs and stuff like that. Many UFO investigators of this period thought that the contactees were so unbelievable that they gravely damaged the public's perception of UFOs and made them seem like silly nonsense. The contactees were so silly that, as we'll see, there were there was even a hesitancy on the part of both UFO believers and non-believers to resist even talking about aliens on board UFOs as if the UFOs were just drones or something. Also, uh, but there were some abductions in this period. Uh, in 1957, a man in Brazil named Antonio Vias Boas claimed to have been abducted, and his is a more classic case of abduction. And then in 1961, the Hills also reported a more classic case of abduction. There may have been other unreported cases, ones that didn't make, you know, a lot of news. But it's fair to say that the Betty and Barney Hill event was the first widely reported case of abduction in the United States. So who were Betty and Barney Hill? Betty and Barney Hill were a couple that lived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, The two had gotten married in May of 1960, a little bit more than a year before the UFO event. They were both divorcees. They were both active in their Unitarian church, and they were both members of the NAACP. Betty was born in 1919, and she was 42 years old at the time of the event. She was a social worker, and she was the more adventurous of the two. She had a more adventurous personality. Barney was born in 1922. He was 39 at the time of the event. He worked for the U.S. Postal Service. He also was on the local board of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. And personality-wise, he was a man who had a lot of anxieties 
Uh, some of these may have been due to his work situation. He was a postal worker in your hometown, Boston, mm. which meant a 60 mile commute every oh, yeah. day to Portsmouth. And given the slow speeds of the primitive highways of the day, that meant a four hour daily commute. Yeah, it's still uh, that way. <laughs> OK, um, it's just more traffic. <laughs> OK, uh, he he also worked the graveyard shift. So it, really bad hours. Right. The year after the UFO in, event in 1962, Barney sought psychiatric treatment for anxiety and other problems. But before that, on Friday, September 15th of 1961, Barney got some time off from his job at the post office and surprised Betty with a trip to Niagara Falls and Montreal, Canada. It was like a quick getaway vacation so they could, you know, just both relax and have some fun. And October on Sunday, September 17th, they left for the trip. And then on Tuesday, September 19th, they started back for Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And that's when the UFO event occurred. Yeah, which uh, put a kibosh on their uh, relaxing time. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> I understand we'll be looking at the story in several stages. What's the first stage? The first stage deals with what they consciously remembered after the event. Uh, it began on the night of Tuesday, September 19th, 1961, as they were driving back from their vacation in Canada. They also had their pet dog in the car. And just over three years later, on October 5th, 1964, Barney gave an interview on the Harv Morgan radio show Contact and we'll now hear what happened in Barney's own words. Uh, please note that I've edited the file to put Barney's comments in chronological order because he originally narrated some things out of order. All right, Mr. Hill, in New Hampshire, could you give us a story of that sighting? Well, this happened in 1961, Tuesday the 19th of uh, September. And my wife and I were returning from Canada to New Hampshire. We were driving along Route 3. And it was approximately 11 o'clock at night in the evening when we saw what looked like a bright star in the heavens. It was the brightest star up there. It was very clear night. So my wife remarked, uh, I was driving the car, and she remarked that the star had begun to move. So uh, this caused me to look through the windshield up toward the sky, and I told her that it was probably a satellite. Nothing to get alarmed about. We did have a, a pair of 7x50 crescent binoculars with us. So I stopped the car, and we got out, and she took the binoculars and was looking at the object, and I reached under the seat to get our little doggy, a little dachshund, and put the chain on her to walk her about while my wife was looking at the object. And she then passed the binoculars to me and said, well, you must really look at this satellite because it's not uh, behaving as we would expect a satellite to behave like. Well, I took the binoculars from her, and I, too, began looking. And surprisingly, this, what I thought was a star and a satellite, began coming in my direction at a very rapid uh, rate of speed. Uh, I was standing, to give a picture, I was standing facing the west, which would have been toward Vermont. And the object was coming from my left, which would have been to the south of me. And as it passed my right shoulder, it was quite a distance out, it made a left turn, completing the turn, and coming in toward me. Well, this caused me to become quite alarmed, and uh, I, re I told my wife, well, apparently it is not a satellite, it must be a passenger plane, and, a and they obviously uh, are looking at us, and 
I thought that the pilot was uh, having uh, fun, uh, that he could easily see our car with the dome light on. Uh, we had not passed any traffic uh, that evening, uh, going or coming in either direction. So I felt a bit uh, uncomfortable to see this, what I thought was a plane, uh, come in our direction. So I returned to the car, and so did she, and we drove down the highway. We continued driving south, and my wife would occasionally remark that this object was still following us. It was flying in a very erratic pattern, and she wanted me to stop, and I would occasionally look over in toward her side, and I could see that this uh, light was still out there moving about. It would go up, and then it would come down at very rapid and odd patterns of flight. Well, then I thought it was probably uh, a military craft, and uh, uh, I was thinking of the hot rod-type flyer, uh, and apparently they were having fun with us. These are the thoughts that were going on in my mind because uh, I had not at any time ever given any thought to uh, UFOs. You might say that I was a bit cynical about the entire uh, idea of concerning you unidentified flying objects. Well, this continued on for several miles as we would travel and stop and look and then continue to travel again. And finally, my wife became very uh, uh, upset. She said, I, I must stop the car again. Look, right overhead. And I looked through the windshield off to the right on her, the passenger side of the car, and this object now was very extremely close, and it was moving backwards. And what I failed to mention is when we saw the object off in a great distance, it appeared to be winking, but now that it was close, it looked as if there was just one solid band of light, and this was moving backwards. And I had slowed the car down to approximately five miles an hour. Well, this was very upsetting, so I came to a complete stop in the center of the highway. I got out of the car, and I took the binoculars. I rest my left arm on the door that was open of the car door and my right uh, elbow on the roof of the car, and I tried to look, but the car was, motor was running, so I had to step away. Uh, as I stepped away from the car, the object swung from the passenger side over to the left, which would have been the side that I was driving, uh, and making a large arc-like turn, uh, placing it over a field. Well, this was very alarming to me, and I began uh, walking across the highway, looking up at the object with the binoculars, putting them down, shaking my head, saying, well, this just can't be true. I don't believe it. Uh, and I continued to walk until I was about, uh, oh, I would say approximately uh, 100 feet in this field, across this field, and the object was just above me. There was the absence of any sound. There was absolutely no sound associated with this object. It must have at the time been approximately 100 uh, feet up or above my head. This would be about 10 stories up. Uh, the size of it was about oh, approximately, uh, uh, if you were looking at a large uh, military plane or at any commercial airliner from tail to head, uh, this is the size of it as the series of windows were around it. This is how huge it was. And this is when, 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 while looking with the binoculars, I could see what I thought was approximately 9 to 11 uh, men. I would describe them. I would say that they were men. Uh, there was nothing uh, grotesque about them. Looking back at me, looking down uh, through this plate of glass, the series, series of windows toward me, well, there was nothing unusual about them. They did have on what I thought uh, was a black-type shiny uniform, similar to the, to the kind uh, you find uh, motorcyclists wearing. 
the black leather type jackets and whatnot. And uh, the uh, one that I will now just for, identif uh, for identifying purposes call a leader, uh, well, he had on a military type cap with the visor while the others did not. Uh, and uh, they moved back to the wind away from the window while this one with the black leather type uh, uniform, I will say uniform, continued to look down at me. Well, I think you indicated earlier that they were pretty human looking. Yes, they? and uh, you have to consider that looking uh, at anyone in a window uh, 10 stories up with a binocular, uh, the only thing you can discern is that they look human and nothing grotesque about them. Uh, did you feel there was anything sinister about these people? Did you get that impression? Uh, yes, I did. Uh, only that uh, it was a strange situation, and therefore, uh, I have thought of this many times, that is to say, was there anything sinister about them, or was it because of the unusual situation that I was in, uh, magnifying uh, my uh, feelings? Uh, I did feel that there was something sinister, strange, unusual about the whole thing. So I then uh, was quite alarmed, but they, uh, of the group that was looking, they all turned to the back of, so that was facing the uh, back of them, there was a panel, it looked as if it was a panel, and they began pulling levers. Only one object continued to stare from the window down toward me. And I then saw two red lights on the side of the craft, which seemed to be the extension of a winged a fan-type wing, I would describe it, not a conventional wing that we associate with the uh, airplanes, but more of a fan-type thing, moving away from the side of this object, which had the shape of the so-called flying saucer. Well, this was too much for me, and I made a hasty retreat to the car, screaming to the wife that they, were, they had seen me, they had seen us, and we had to get away. The thing that has continued to be an enigma a puzzle to me is that I said, my God, they're going to capture us. And uh, I have never understood why. I cannot understand why I made that remark. Uh, when I returned to the car, there was a series of beeps. Uh, these beeps were very peculiar because uh, it was much like a tuning fork being struck and placed against you, a very subtle type vibration. And that's the way the car vibrated. And it was beep, 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 beep. And I, I said to my wife, my God, what is that? I said, look out the window. They're right overhead. And she looked out of the window, but she couldn't see anything. And, and later we find out that she couldn't see the sky as well. So apparently the craft had moved overhead over us. You didn't have a relaxed feeling at any time, did you? Uh, yes. You did? Uh, after I, rush, I returned to the car, there is just a void, you might say, because we did not again mention anything about uh haven't seen anything and so we were now uh 35 miles further south and uh, we saw what we thought was a bright moon and i said not again and then we were beeped again and then we can from that point we started talking with one another about well what do you think of that and my wife asked me well do you believe in flying saucers now and i said oh don't be silly of course not <laughs> So here are the key points from what they consciously remembered after the event. They saw what at first appeared to be a star, but it moved around and got closer. They stopped several times to observe it through binoculars. It moved back and forth in the sky, and it seemed to be tracking them. Eventually, Barney saw it close enough that he saw it had a row of, or actually two rows, of lighted windows. 
Uh, it also had red lights on fins or wings that moved to extend out from the sides of the craft. Inside the windows, there were around 10 men. Barney thought they looked human, and they were wearing dark-colored uniforms. He panicked and thought they were going to be captured. They then drove off, but heard an odd beeping noise, and they didn't talk for about 35 miles. Then they heard the beeping noise again and started to talk about the experience. Mm. So what happened next then? They continued driving, and around dawn on Wednesday, September 20th, Barney checked his watch and noticed it had stopped working. Uh, Betty's had stopped also. And this is something that people today may be unfamiliar with, either partly because we tend not to wear watches. We use our cell phones to know what time it is. But we have digital even, watches. Yeah. Even people who do wear watches wear these yeah. digital ones that are battery powered. Back right. in the day when I was a kid, you had to wind your watch. Mm-hmm. And so it was easy for watches to run down if you weren't paying attention. And theirs either stopped working, got broken somehow, or they they wound down. Anyway, they got home after dawn, and Barney said, it looks like we've arrived a little later than expected. They started unpacking their car, and for some reason, Betty wanted to store the luggage in a rear hallway rather than have it brought directly into the house. She also wanted to have the extra food they had with them in the car thrown away. Barney went to the bathroom and inspected his groin. Later, he said he didn't know why he did this, but he felt unclean. Hmm. Betty noticed a pink powdery substance on her dress, and she threw it away, but the dress. But then she got it out of the trash and hung it on a clothesline. The pink powder blew away, but left visible stains. She put the dress and her shoes in the back of her closet and forgot about them for years. They decided that the events of the night were so crazy they wouldn't tell anyone about them. But after taking a nap, Betty wanted to tell her sister, who had also had a UFO sighting some years previously, so she called her. The sister then wanted to call a neighbor of hers who was a physicist. From the same radio interview we heard earlier, Barney picks up the story of what happened when she called back with word from the physicist. Her sister called us back to tell us that the physicist had suggested that we go out and see if there was any radioactivity or rather ready anything uh, unusual about the car if we had a compass to take it with us. Well, I, this was too much for me. I told my wife that as far as I was concerned, uh, I wanted to forget the whole thing. And so she said, well, where's the compass? And I told her, well, I don't know. I put it somewhere. And she said, well, where's the compass? I said, oh, if you're going to keep this up, I'll smash the compass. And she said, well, if you do, I'll go out and buy another one. And so she found the compass. She went out. She came back in to the house very excited and insisted on me going out and looking at her car. We were using her car at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, on the trunk of her car, there were these large, shiny spots about the size of uh, a silver dollar. There must have been approximately 20 of these spots, not in any particular pattern, but just these spots on the trunk. Uh, after having traveled the distance we had, the car was quite dusty, but these spots were very, very highly shiny. And wherever she would put the compass near the, these spots, uh, the compass would spin. But if she placed the compass close to uh, any of the areas where the spots weren't located, surprisingly, the compass then would tilt downward toward the middle of the, of the car. Well, I thought this was a bit unusual because I did try to say, well, at any time you take the compass 
and place it around any metal, uh, particularly like a car with a battery, it will attract a magnet to it. But the fact that the compass would spin only in the area where the spot was located, I thought was a bit unusual. And then this is when my wife decided, well, we should notify someone, and we thought of notifying of the military uh, base located in this area. Do you feel that those spots had anything to do with that beeping sound that followed uh, your car? Do you think that the metal discs then did have anything to do with that beeping sound? I do, yes. So the car trunk had unusual shiny spots on it that caused the needle of a compass to spin. This was witnessed by multiple people, not just uh, Betty and Barney. And the shiny spots lasted some time, though they eventually faded away. The Hills then spoke with the local Air Force base, which took their report and forwarded it on to Project Blue Book, the Air Force study of UFOs in the 60s. So it's part of that. If you look in the Blue Book records, they have the Betty and Barney Hill case there. Notably, when they talked to the Air Force, Barney, they didn't mention that Barney had seen crewmen on board the ship. Apparently, they thought this was just too unbelievable. This is part of the hesitancy about talking about occupants on UFOs. We thus have a record of what they were saying that was made within one day of the event, but it omits the mention of the crewmen. And note, at this first stage of the story, the Hills did not report being abducted. Mm -hmm. They only reported that Barney was afraid they might be. Okay, so if the first stage of this story involved what they consciously recalled after the incident, what happened in the second stage? Several days after the encounter, Betty began having a series of nightmares about the event. At the urging of a co-worker, she typed these up. The events that she dreamed weren't all in sequence, but she put them into what she took to be chronological order, so they formed a coherent narrative. The narrative starts towards the end of Barney's story, just before the craft, uh, just before the second set of beeps, when they saw a big orange light and thought it was the craft coming back and said, not again. But they then concluded it was the setting moon. Betty dreamed that after this, they saw a roadblock with nine to 11 men in uniform in the road ahead of them. Barney slowed the car and the men surrounded it. They then took the hills out of the car and led them to a landed craft, so it was no longer in the air. One of the men told Betty, in English, not to be afraid, and they only wanted to run some tests. The men, she reported, were between 5 and 5 foot 4 inches tall, which was her height. They had larger-than-normal chests and big noses, like Jimmy Durante, the comedian. Uh, she said their skin had a grayish tint and their lips were bluish. They also had dark eyes and hair, so they weren't bald. They wore military-style caps, short jackets, and pants of what she described as a light blue navy color. At the craft, they went up some stairs and then onto a ramp, and then inside the craft, the crewmen separated the hills. Betty was examined, so separately from Barney, so she didn't see what was happening to him. Uh, she was asked questions about how old she was and what she ate, but the examiner didn't understand the words she used for things like milk, meat, and vegetables. Skin, hair, and nail samples were taken from her. Her body was examined using a scanning rod made out of many needles connected to a wire that led back to a machine. Then a four to six inch long needle was attached to the rod and inserted into her navel. 
the crewman said this was a pregnancy test and it was not supposed to hurt, but it did. After Betty got dressed, some crewmen came in and spoke in a language Betty didn't understand, and the leader opened her mouth and pulled on her teeth. They then asked why Barney's teeth came out and hers didn't, and she explained that Barney had dentures. Even though he was only 39 at the time, Barney had lost his teeth in an accident when he was in the military. Betty asked for something she could use to prove to others that she had had this encounter, and the leader gave her a book with alien writing in it. The leader also showed her a star map with lines indicating expeditions between different star systems. But he said that if she didn't know where Earth was on the star map, he couldn't explain where they were from. Betty tried to sell the leader on the idea of having a quiet meeting with scientists and political leaders so that the aliens could study humans openly, but he just smiled. As they were leaving, an argument broke out among the crewmen, and the leader took back the book he had given to Betty. He also said it had been decided that nobody should remember the experience. Betty said she would remember it, but the leader said he would do his best to see that she didn't, that nobody would believe her, and that Barney would either remember nothing or remember it differently than she did. Uh, the crewmen then took the hills back to their car, and they watched Kraft depart before getting back in their vehicle and driving off. Betty then asked Barney if he believed in flying saucers, and he said, no, of course not. Betty thought to herself that she was willing to forget the experience if that's what the leader wanted. So she'd like come around on this forget this whole thing business. And this was all from her dreams, right? This is this is from her dreams. Okay. Yeah. Afterwards, Betty started telling her dreams to a few people, and we know that Barney overheard them. Okay. In this period, which is now October of 1961, they were contacted by NICAP. That's the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, a UFO study group. And they, they, NICAP, also prepared a report on the incident. During the course of this investigation, it was argued that their journey should not have taken as long as it did, and they should have gotten home an hour or two earlier. The phrase, missing time, was then coined to refer to what they had experienced, and it's since become a, supposedly a classic signature of UFO abductions, the abductees experience missing time that they can't account for. In 1962, Barney discovered that his groin now had a perfect circle or near-perfect circle of warts, and these later became inflamed and he had them removed. Note that in this second phase of the story, Betty now had these dreams of being abducted, but Barney did not remember the abduction. Okay, so that's the second stage of this story. What happened in the, the third stage? The third stage deals with memories the couple reported recovering after they began a series of sessions under clinical hypnosis. Starting a little more than two years after the event, from January to June of 1964, Dr. Benjamin Simon of Boston, your hometown, yep. began a series of sessions in which he used hypnosis on them, and he found them both to be highly hypnotizable. We're fortunate that Dr. Simon kept tape recordings of these sessions so we can listen to them today. They could get pretty intense. Uh, we're going to play a few clips now from one of Barney's sessions. You'll hear him describing how he wants to get a gun to protect himself during the encounter. Uh, he actually had one in his in the trunk of the car 
which he retrieved at one point during one of the stops. Then you'll hear him describing what the craft looked like as he was watching it through binoculars. And then you'll hear him describe how he felt the leader of the craft communicating with him through his eyes and telepathically or something telling him to just keep looking at the craft. I try to maintain control so Betty cannot tell I am scared. It's all right. You can go right on experience it. It will not hurt you now. I got to get my gun. Now, for contrast, we're going to play some clips from one of Betty's hypnosis sessions or from several of them, actually. In the first one, you'll hear her describe her fear upon being taken out of the car. Then you'll hear her describing how the alien leader let her find something to take with her as proof of the encounter. And finally, you'll hear her describe how the aliens were surprised to discover Barney's false teeth. He tried to start the car yes. and it won't start. And the vet, I mean, I just 
And I think, well, I can't get away from this. I get, if I get the car door open, I can run in the woods and hide. And I'm thinking, and I just put my hand on the car door and open it. And just, and the men come up and they open it for me. And I said, well, if he could give me something to take back with me, then people would believe it. And so he told me to look around and maybe I could find something I would like to take. And I did. And there wasn't much around, but on the cabinet, there was a book, a, a, a fairly big book. So I, uh, I, I put my hand on the book and I said, could I have this? And the, the leader laughed, and he asked me if I thought I could read it. And I told him, no, I laughed too. I said, no. But I wasn't taking it to read that this is my proof. And so he said that I could, ha I could have the book if I wanted it. The the examiner has me op has me open my mouth and he starts checking my teeth and they're tugging at them and I ask him what are they trying to do? What were they doing at them? They were trying pulling tugging at tugging my teeth. Tugging at them. Yes. Yes. And the the examiner said that they were very, he was very excited, and he said that <laughs> he said that they couldn't figure it out. Barney's teeth came out if I didn't. <laughs> so did anything new emerge from the these hypnosis sessions? Some stuff. Barney's hypnosis sessions didn't reveal a lot. He said that he was told to keep his eyes closed through much of the experience, and he did. However, he reported feeling a medical examination being done on him, including having a cold cup placed on his groin to take a specimen of his germ cells. Betty told the same basic story that she had in her dreams. She did add some additional details, such as turns the car made before they were stopped and abducted. Uh, Betty also reported the conversations with the aliens in more detail. They had trouble understanding the concepts of aging and what a year is. Uh, they didn't understand what vegetables are, and therefore they also didn't understand what the vegetable squash is. Betty liked to eat that. And they, when she told them it was a yellow vegetable, they didn't understand what yellow meant. Both also had minor variations in detail. For example, uh, Betty reported walking up a ramp into the craft instead of stairs followed by a ramp. Also, both of them reported the crewmen looking less human than they had before. 
Barney drew a picture of the alien leader who is now clearly not human. Betty reported the aliens being smaller, saying that instead of between being five and five foot four, they were like four and a half feet tall. Although she said one of them was only three and a half feet tall. They called him the little guy. She now reported that they lacked any hair. They did not have notable lips or earlobes or normal noses. Not the big Jimmy Durante noses she saw in her dreams. Now she just reported like vestigial noses or slits for nostrils. Uh, She said they had slanted eyes extending around the sides of their faces with irises filling up most of the eyes. They also had larger heads. So in other words, they look a lot more like stereotypical gray aliens, but without completely black eyes. Also, in this third stage of the story, Betty drew a copy of the star map that the alien leader showed her. So what happened after their hypnotism sessions? Their story gradually spread, and they became the subject of more media attention. In 1966, author John Fuller published a book called The Interrupted Journey, which was for years the definitive book on this, although there are better ones out today, which we'll be recommending in the further resources. In 1969, Barney died of a cerebral hemorrhage. He was 46 years old at the time, and Betty never remarried. In 1968, a woman named Marjorie Fish took an interest in Betty's star map, and she made a three-dimensional model because, you know, no computers, no home computers at this time. So she she made a three-dimensional model using beads on a string to beads on strings to reconstruct our solar system's stellar neighborhood. She then turned the 3D model at different angles, looking for alignments that matched Betty's star map. And she found one. She identified the aliens' apparent home stars as Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 reticuli. Uh, reticulum is a constellation. It's, it's called the net. Uh, that's what reticulum means. And she then identified our son, Saul, as one of the other stars on the map that had a line to it indicating an expedition. Zeta Reticuli is a binary star system that is 39 light years from Earth. Both uh, Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 Reticuli are G-type stars, which means they're similar to our sun, and they're almost 520 light hours apart. To give you uh, some perspective on that, the distance from the sun to Pluto is 5.5 light hours. So 520 light hours is almost 100 times the distance from the sun to Pluto. So they are far enough apart to have stable planetary systems. You know, in in the cases of some binary binary star systems, the gravity of the two stars could really mess with planets, but that wouldn't be the case here. Both stars are old enough to have planets with advanced life, though so far we haven't detected any planets around them, I checked. This, by the way, is the start of the idea that you often hear in UFO culture that aliens might come from Zeta Reticuli. In December of 1974, Astronomy Magazine published an article that began a debate about her solution to the Betty Hill star map, and Carl Sagan and other famous astronomers weighed in on it. The next year, in 1975, there was a TV movie called The UFO Incident that was released about this event, and it starred James Earl Jones as Barney. Oh, wow. The, vo- the voice of Darth Vader. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, in later years, uh, Betty pretty much 
damage to reputation in some significant ways. Mm. In part, that's because her memories of the event seem to have begun to get fuzzy, and she made some inaccurate claims about things that had happened. For example, she claimed at one point that the Library of Congress has a copy of the tape recordings of her hypnosis sessions, but searches at the Library of Congress have not turned that up. Her critics were quick to pounce on these mistakes, but I'm more inclined to view them generously and just say, you know, they're just mistakes due to a declining memory in old age. Right. So, you know, I, I don't think the every little thing she misremembered later should be held against her credibility. But she did clearly become obsessed with UFOs in a way that impaired her judgment. Now, people have pointed out if you get abducted, you might become a little obsessed. And that's true. But it also impaired her judgment. She would go out several times a week looking for UFOs and claim to find them. She even had a special spot where she went where she reported seeing lots of UFOs. And this spot became famous and its location was sort of an open secret because she would take other people there and say, look, see that UFO to get a sense of some of the things she did later on. Let's look at some passages from a paper in a book called Encounters at Indian Head by the skeptic Robert Schaefer. Encounters at Indian Head is a symposium book that was held a few years ago where you had people from different perspectives, supporters and critics of Betty and Barney Hill get together and discuss the incident. And they then had these papers published in Encounters at Indian Head. And so here's what the skeptic Robert Schaefer had to say about what Betty did later on. We've got three passages. The first, after their abduction, Betty and Barney Hill would go out looking for UFOs and were to see them many more times. In fact, Betty reports that, quote, every night UFOs paced us. Sometimes it was only one. Sometimes it was four. End quote. Uh, that's from uh, a quotation from uh, Betty Hill 19, in 1995. The second passage. John Oswald, a field investigator for CUFOS, or that is the Center for UFO Studies, accompanied Betty on a vigil at her now famous UFO landing spot. He reported that on one occasion, she was unable to, quote, distinguish, distinguish between a landed UFO and a streetlight, end quote. Yeah, yeah. So kind of not good judgment. Yes. Uh, then the third uh, passage in a long three-part article by Dr. Berthold E. Schwartz, a New Jersey psychiatrist, formerly with APRO, i.e. the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, who has spent much time interviewing Betty, numerous paranormal events allegedly experienced by her are related. She reportedly has encountered a, quote, pumpkin head form that glides beside her car as a UFO hovers above. Afterwards, she is, quote, filled with electricity, end quote setting off airport security devices, and resetting electric clocks. She's also performed babysitting chores for a troublesome ghost named Hannah to give her sister a respite from a long and tedious haunting. After the ghost had reportedly settled in at Betty's home in Portsmouth, quote, Hannah would walk in the room, cough, and you'd see the rocking chair rock, but nobody was in it, end quote. Uh, th that is a quotation from Betty. Betty has also stated that she believes herself to be receiving telepathic messages from her alien abductors. Yeah. And so supporters of Betty Hill will say, uh, I mean, some of them 
will say that, well, okay, UFOs took a special interest in her and and maybe she did have all of these other things happening, including there are some theorists who will say they have what's sometimes called a unified theory of weirdness, where you have like ghostly phenomena and UFOs and Bigfoots and all kinds of things happening in proximity of each other. Mm-hmm. And they then get interpreted in these different ways. And so there are solutions that have been proposed, but for most people, it gets more implausible. The more the more of these different pheno- phenomena you claim to report and the more frequently you encounter them. I would like if at some point as we go into the you know talking about the the theories and whatnot, is is maybe we could talk about whether the weirdness, the strange things that she started to say and do later whether the, the, there's evidence that maybe if there was an actual abduction, it psychologically damaged her. Like that might be evidence for. Yeah, yeah uh, you could definitely say that. Also, Betty's niece, Kathleen Martin, has said that Betty had observable behavior changes in the 1980s and 1990s and that she exhibited questionable judgment that, quote, can possibly be linked to what was later diagnosed as a slow-growing brain tumor, close quote. Betty then died of cancer, not a brain tumor, Mm -hmm. but of cancer in 2004 at age 85. And like like I said, some uh, UFO uh, believers might say, well, that's because the aliens did something to her uh, that caused this slow-growing brain tumor or something like that. Uh, or whatnot. So uh, I, I you, just you mention could that. propose that. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that and we maybe we'll get into that when we talk about theories and, and so much. Uh, so where do we go from here? In preparing this out, the outline for this episode, I realized it would be an insanely long episode if we tried to do it all in one show. It could even be our longest ever, especially if we included the audio excerpts of the Hills speaking. But I really wanted to include them because the they the audio evidence they provide speaks to the Hill's credibility. You know, you listen to the way Barney conducts himself in that radio interview. You listen to the way they both seem to freak out under hypnosis and experience intense emotion. You know, that says something about their credibility. So I really wanted to include those audio excerpts. And what I decided to do was split this episode in half. But you won't have to wait long. This week, we covered the basic facts of the story as it emerged. And next week, we'll evaluate the evidence and I'll propose what I think really happened. Uh, so, uh, so folks, uh, we'll leave you on a cliffhanger here. But uh, Jimmy, what's the, some further resources for folks uh, if they want to get started on some of that before they listen to the second half? There's one of the books we mentioned is uh, edited by a guy, a guy named Carl Flock, P F L O C K. In 2007, he put out Encounters at Indian Head, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO abduction revisited. That was about the symposium that they had held at Indian Head, which is near where the event occurred, um, they'd held the symposium in the year 2000, and not everybody who participated in the book could be there, but they had some additional people contribute papers to the book, and it's a really good one in that it provides multiple perspectives on this from people who do believe and don't believe and people who are somewhere in between, so it's a, it's a really uh, well-done book if you want to research this subject. Also, we'll have a link to a book by Kathleen Marden, that's Betty's niece, and the famous UFO expert Stanton Friedman. Also in 2007, the the two of them put out a book called Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. And this is the best book from a pro-abduction point of view. 
Uh, Martin and Friedman both believe that Betty and Barney really were abducted. And so if you want to see that case put forward vigorously, this is the book you want to get if you want a book-length treatment of that. Then we'll have John Fuller's 1966 book, The Interrupted Journey, which was the one that popularized them in the on kind of on the national stage. This book has useful information in it, but it's also been pointed out that it has some flaws. And both the participants in the symposium and Marden and Friedman talk about that. In some cases, Fuller changed some facts, sometimes for understandable purposes. Like, uh, for example, at one point in Fuller's book, he has Barney retrieving a tire iron from the trunk of the car instead of a 22 caliber pistol. The reason is it was illegal to transport a 22 caliber pistol across state lines. Right. And so he didn't want to get him in trouble. And so he substituted a tire iron in the book. So there are some variations in detail. We'll then have a link to Kathleen Marden's website on Betty and Barney Hill to Wikipedia's page on them. Also a link to Betty's original hand-drawn version of the star map and Marjorie Fish's interpretation of the star map. We'll also have Barney's original hand-drawn sketch of the alien leader who is wearing a cap, and it's a pretty crude sketch, but it gives you an idea. And then we'll have a uh, link to a painting of the alien that was made with the Hill's input. Okay. Excellent. So those are some good resources for you to to get a head start on before we uh, finish up this story next week. Uh, So let's move on to some mysterious feedback. We're going to get some feedback right now on the Betts sphere, which a lot of people, we got a lot of great feedback. A lot of people really enjoyed this because, you know, uh, it's such a great mystery. Uh, In fact, Michael on Facebook wrote, how do you keep coming up with topics I've never heard of? I have loved mystery my whole life and you keep amazing me. Thank you. Well, thank you, Michael. Um, I I don't know that there is any secret sauce other than just the fact I'm curious about all kinds of stuff. And over the course of time, I run across a lot of little weird, interesting things and think, hmm, there's a mystery there. <laughs> I know this was this episode. I have to add that it was a huge source of a conversation in my house as everyone, my wife and my kids, we all had everyone had theories about it. So uh, it was a great, a great opportunity to discuss. Uh, Brendan Quinn on YouTube uh, writes, Jimmy and Dom hit the ball out of the park with this episode. Yeah, and I I, I can't help wondering, since the bet sphere was sometimes called the space ball, if he's got a little (laughs) double entendre going, hit the ball out of the park. (laughs) Uh, Carl Strello on YouTube writes, thanks. That is another really good episode. I wonder if it was the same sphere they got back or was it tampered with? Does it still do the same movements, but they're remaining silent about it? That was my theory. Uh huh. Well, it's possible they could be. The family says it didn't do the same movements. And we do have a report from Alan Hynek's uh, son that they had something that looked like the Bet Sphere at their house, apparently. Uh, we had lots of people wondering did they get the real sphere back or was it a duplicate or is the other sphere that the Hynek's reportedly had? Was that the duplicate? Was it like a mock up? Until uh, until one or both families produce what they have and let it be examined, there's no real way of knowing. Mm. Uh, but my my theory was that it, that the Betzes were done with the public infamy 
And so they they wanted to re- recede out of the public eye and said, oh, it's broken. You know, it doesn't do yeah. it anymore. Could, and, could be. And it's now in their attic rolling around on its own. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines? First mysterious headline this week is about hacking humans being the next cyber threat. Ooh. People already have implantable devices like insulin pumps and pacemakers, and there have been recalls of those over hacking concerns that there are they're not cyber secure. And the given the nanotechnology that is being developed for medical purposes right now in the future, people may have programmable nanobots in them, which will present all kinds of new mm. security issues. Uh, so we'll have a um, an article about cyber hacking of the human body and what's being done to try to combat it. Also, recently we mentioned a new expedition to try to find out what happened to Amelia Earhart that we'll be reporting back on in the near future. In the meantime, though, I have a link to an article about some skull fragments that may belong to Amelia Earhart. Mm. And so this story is really heating up. Uh, These skull fragments were in a museum. They were originally classified as being a man, but they got looked at again and they were lost for a while, but now they're found. And Mm. so uh, interesting stuff happening with those. Excellent. Interesting. Uh, the the, uh, the on the hacking humans, uh, there was an episode of the TV show Homeland where terrorists hacked the vice president's pacemaker to kill him. Uh, Ooh, that was so- in uh, in the X Files. There was an episode where Agent uh, I forget his exact title, but like Special Agent in Charge Walter Skinner or Deputy Director mm-hmm. Walter Skinner gets injected with nanobots, which are then under cyber control Ooh. and <laughs> make his blood veins turn black and cause him a lot of pain and it's used to manipulate him Mm, wow uh so science fiction may be becoming science yeah by the way speaking of the x-files people may remember on that show during scully's abduction that she in the flashes of her abduction we saw we saw like a rod sticking down to her to her belly button as she was pregnant and um that's based on what betty hill claimed happened to her Right, right, right. Yes, I remember. Yeah, that's why some of the imagery I was getting uh, based on the descriptions. Yeah, that had to have come from the those X file episodes. Interesting. All right. So before we uh, finish off, and before uh, we we have a few final words, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Adam C, Jeffrey J, Ben B, Christopher M, and Nick. Their generous donations at sqpn dot com slash give. Make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And folks, that's not just a a, a neat phrase. It really is uh, the, these donations that make it possible for us to keep bringing you these episodes. And we do appreciate that and uh, encourage you to join them uh, if you can. Your, but, your donations are the lifeblood of the network. Exactly. Uh, so if you could go, if you can, to sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, uh, I think I can guess what our next episode is going to be about. <laughs> our next episode is going to be Betty and Barney Hill Part 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> this time, it's personal. <laughs> All right. So uh, that's it from us. Uh, what do you think about this so far, folks? What's your theory? Would you, what, what do you think happened uh, before Jimmy gives you his take on it? We want to hear from you. Let us know by going to sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, or you can send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. 
Or if you'd like, you can go on Twitter to our Twitter account at MYS underscore world and use the hashtag of Mysterious Feedback. Be sure to check out the Mysterious World bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions, uh, not just in today's episode, but in all the shows we've done. It's a great one-place resource to get links to all that stuff. And when you buy things from that page, that also helps support the show. Uh, you can find the links to all of the, the the resources from our discussion and the links to the Mysterious Headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bethanelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest.